Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. With me are two of my Black classmates, Jerry Secundi and John Woodford. I'm also joined by classmates David Othmer, Doug Shapiro, Joel Huberman, Ann Huberman, Nick Bancroft, Ken Manister, Mason Morford, Peter Lasavo, and Marcy Benstock. Our guest is Julia Kayum. She is a former Assistant Secretary for Homeland Security under President Barack Obama, is the faculty chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, author of Security Mom, An Unclassified Guide to Protecting Our Homeland and Your Home. She is a homeland security and counterterrorism expert. This podcast was recorded on the afternoon of Thursday, August 26th, just as news of the suicide bombing in Afghanistan was coming in. Here's Juliet K.M. Thank you all for having me and, and, and putting up with me today. It's a, I have a, um, a, a background in counterterrorism and homeland security, uh, and I'm faculty chair of the Homeland Security Program and the, and the uh, uh, Security and Global Health Program at the Kennedy School. And um, I've you know, spent a career in the public sector. I was uh, a state homeland security advisor for our previous governor, some of you may know, uh, uh, Deval Patrick, and then um, uh, and then moved to work for Obama at DHS. So my work is what we call sort of all hazards. So it's counterterrorism and pandemic. It's like all this bad stuff that happens. And so thanks for putting up with me today as, as, I, as I monitor this sort of sad, which I'm happy to talk about sort of sad situation. Um, not quite sure. I'm not quite sure what the better scenario is, but we could certainly talk that through of what's happening in Afghanistan. Um, but uh, but uh, started my career. Um, so anyway, so I do, um, and I'm a columnist and an analyst. I'm a columnist for The Atlantic and an analyst for CNN. So I've been writing uh, for The Atlantic for uh, uh, about 18 months now. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. I hope all of you uh, uh, subscribe to The Atlantic, not just read it. It's, it's really shown... Uh, uh, through the pandemic, I think in ways that some of our more mainstream uh, 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 commentary has in it, just uh, something about being able to write a thousand or 1100 words as compared to 600. Uh, but also they have some great uh, 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 writers in the science space, but um, I digress. But anyway, we, I, have, I had a piece uh, uh, two weeks ago uh, urging the Biden administration to to uh, have vaccination requirements for domestic travel. Uh, it seemed jaw dropping then, uh, but Canada has moved that way and hopefully the Biden administration will see it. Not because airline travel is necessarily dangerous, it probably isn't between the masking and the, ven and the, and the ventilation. Um, it's just it's at some stage, and I'm pretty harsh about this, and at, at some stage, 
uh, the burden has to be borne by the unvaccinated. I think those of us who are vaccinated are a little bit tired of, of both being vaccinated and being cautious. Uh, and so a mandate like that would, would move the unvaccinated to get vaccinated because, um, because they consistently say uh, in polling that, um, uh, that uh, denial of airline travel is one of the things that would likely move them. Um, my next piece is coming out Saturday, so you get a little preview, uh, 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 which is just basically to view the FDA approval on Monday. Remember, I'm not a scientist, so I, I think about bulk. Like I say, I, you know, the doctors think intimately, people like me who deal with response and consequence management think in bulk, right? And so, so and I think that's probably good. I think I, it's, it's basically, I'd be curious any of you in the space, but it's basically um, a preview and, and we'll get it to you on Saturday. It's basically, uh, I'm done with, 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 the, with the public health communication strategy. I'm sort of done with a lot right now, which is just essentially saying that uh, uh, the good doctors got us to where we need to be, thank God for the vaccine. Uh, but you know, we need to just, uh, uh, now that we have FDA approval, just, uh, demand mandates everywhere, that enough trying to understand the unvaccinated. Uh, we're in a crisis, we're heading into another one. If we don't get handle of Delta uh, before the winter months, um, I'm if I get it, I'm probably gonna be fine. So maybe I shouldn't sweat it, uh, but I do care about uh, about others and certainly our children who can't get, and, and maybe some of your grandchildren who can't get vaccinated. Uh, and so um, we have to stop thinking about what's motivating the un unvaccinated um, and treat them all as anti-vaxxers. It's a little strong, uh, but I just think, I think we're done with motivations. If you don't have the vaccine by now, you ha we have to assume that you're anti-vax. Because I mean, what more can be done? It's accessible, it's free. You know, there, there's been outreach. You can get it, you know, easier than you can, you know, grab a Diet Coke and and uh, and and now it's been approved. So so let me go back to sort of the national security issues. So a, a couple things on that. The reason um, in March, let me tell you a little bit about my 2020s. Once again, I'm in the whole I'm in the I'm in the response phase. You'll meet other people here who do intelligence stuff. So in, for me, it's around. Um, thinking about how we prepare a nation for any number of threats, including as, as Marcy was saying, you know, climate change. How do we think about disaster relief distribution to make for a safer, safer country and things like that. Um, in January 4th, I had returned from a holiday with my family uh, on January 2nd. And on January 4th, across my screen, which happens because I do follow some stuff, um, was a, a report from a from a news, uh, a, a news site called Stat News, S-T-A-T. And I only tell you because for those of you interested in something, you know, sort of deeper and more focused than the New York Times, but reader friendly, uh, which Stat News is, um, uh, it's just terrific. And they had a small piece on a new virus in China. This came out January 4th, I remember it exactly, uh, about a new virus in China that was inexplicable. And the, and the article seemed for someone who pricks up her ears on things like this about international security, the article seemed weird because in it, the Chinese were insisting Yes, it's a new virus, but no one's dead. Um, now we, we probably think that more are, were dead earlier. 
And yet they had called in the World Health Organization. Those things didn't fit, right? I mean, in other words, either China thinks they have a problem or everything's fine. And I remember, I'm a big tweeter, Twitterer person. I remember um, putting out a tweet that day that just said, this sounds suspicious, but having no idea what was about to happen. I progressively, both on air and, 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 and on, on social media, got more and more alarmed by what you were seeing. And looking back, like, I mean, remember when we were looking at Italy in February and being like, oh, I hope we don't get it here. I mean, <laughs> we were like mad. Of course we were going to get it here. And, you know, a lot of that has to do, obviously, with our leadership at the time and its unwillingness to accept. And, and to be clear, I mean, my politics are clear. I don't think any president, um, you know, we, we were going to have a certain amount of fatalities. The question was, was, was it going to be under 100,000 or closer to 700,000, which is what we're getting to now. Uh, and that gap, I do blame on leadership. Uh, um, uh, the, so the Atlantic called me in early March and said, we're, they were following me and they said, or one of the editors was following me and said, you know, we're getting a little bit worried about your Twitter feed. You seem really, really concerned. And I was like, I am really, really concerned. And I've prepared my house and prepared my kids. And, and they said, will you prepare us for, you know, our readers for what's about to happen? So on like March 8th or 9th, I had my first piece for the Atlantic. And I only tell this because how shocking I think it was for people to sort of accept what was about to happen. And, um, and, uh, uh, and, and, uh, uh, I wrote it sort of saying, we're not ready and this is happening. Like what I'm seeing in Italy is not like, oh, I hope it doesn't come here. It's like, that's what's going to happen here. It was like a premonition more than a, you know, anything else. And, um, and, uh, uh, and I said, what's the title to him? And he said, uh, we've titled in America, you have no idea what's about to happen. And then I have the email exchange because it made it into my book. And then uh, I said, that's great. And then he emailed back, he goes, too strong, question mark. And then in, you know, a year and a half later, no, it was not too strong. Um, so, so, and I, so I'm interested in two things having to do with, I think, the issues that you also think about um, uh, uh, um, that are, um, um, I think on the international side or sort of what, how to think about this uh, in terms of global security. Okay, so the, the, the first is, uh, I think the good news. Uh, our vaccines are the best. The fact that the United States is responsible for the three, arguably the three of the most effective vaccines, because there are a whole bunch of things, it does say something about our capacity to mobilize innovation, technology, science uh, to support global health. Now, there's obviously questions about distribution, uh, but um, uh, global distribution, which I'm happy to answer questions on. But I, I sort of want to start with the good news, right? So um, in terms of that, that's, that's not nothing. Uh, and so it does show that our capacity to deal with the next pandemic, if we continue to support research and development uh, in the private sector, which we absolutely should do, uh, and, and, a, and a testament to the previous administration for their investments uh, or shared costs with some of these companies is terrific. And I, I'm one of these people, I have no problem if 
if, 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 you know, biotech companies are making a lot of money off of this, you know what, they, they did it, you know, they, they to, to the, to the, to the person who gets me out of this, that go the spoils. So um, I know a lot of people focus on their, you know, stock market price. I just, you know what? Yeah, that's how the market works. I'm, we're not going to fix it now. The other, well, I'm more worried about global distribution, but uh, the, the, the thing that I think is going to be the legacy of the pandemic, and then I'll, I'll, happy to take questions across from climate to pandemics to even terrorism and white right-wing su supremacy and i think what brought me to you is the is um is uh uh two legacies uh the first is that our architecture our, our governance architecture those of you who are um, um historians makes us un built unsafe us being the united states and we saw uh we saw the failures of national leadership uh, and what it could potentially do, in particular preparing the supply chain. Uh, but in a 50-state disaster, this is this is America's first 50-state disaster. It's the first time all 50 states had declared, and the territories and tribal had declared disasters under the emergency management um, stuff. So, so what does that mean? That that means that um, that uh, we have to have better ways to deal with our architecture because the United States is not going to change our federal system uh, uh, anytime soon. And I and I'd argue that we we shouldn't. Uh, that that um, and so uh, that that is that's been both a blessing and a curse. Um, it's, it's been a blessing in that when you saw sort of lack of national leadership, you really did see governors and mayors coming to the forefront, whatever the legacy of Andrew Cuomo is. Uh, for those of us in my space and whatever is unearthed, you know, those uh, press conferences at a scary time were people's antidote to, to a very different kind of press conference we were seeing at the White House. So that's the first thing. Um, but but they also could be it also could be our downfall, right? In other words, now we have governors like Governor Abbott, DeSantis in Florida, who are sort of politicizing the masking and vaccination issues. And so you're going to have you, our our floor is always going to be uh, is going to be DeSantis, right? Given a pandemic, but our ceiling can actually also. Uh, be established by governors and mayors. So I'll just remind you on a certain story. Um, anyone know the first city to lock down in the United States? I don't think any of you are from there. Early March, what was the first city? Anyone remember? Because it came as a shock, San Francisco. San Francisco was the first city. Why did she know? Why did that mayor know? It wasn't that she had any better intelligence or global intelligence. It was because uh, it was the Chinese New Year and none of her constituents showed up. They had the, you know, the big party in, in San Francisco. And so she sends out her people and said, what the heck is going on? I mean, she had heard about the pandemic, obviously. And they were assessing from the Chinese American community in Chinatown, which had strong ties to China, that their fear level was 10x anyone else's and they they realized by talking to family members just how bad this was and she turned around and realized i i can't i can't trust uh dc and what they're telling me which is don't worry about it but i can trust 
uh, but I'm trusting my people. So that's just an interesting way to think about how our federal system, which the world is watching, is both a blessing and a curse. This is not going to change in real time, right? I mean, in other words, we're going to have this always. On the national security front, I mean, there's a couple things. I mean, one is, uh, um, uh, is um, that the that the impact of our inability to control this and the just madness, I mean, this is, the, whatever you think about Biden or your politics, our politics is like, you know, I don't think about him as much. That's like super nice, right? I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, oh, I, I spent a day not thinking about my president. So um, uh, um, the world and China in particular, uh, view our inability to manage this adequately as a projection of our strength. And while the world watched, it also turned eastward. China has taken, a, China, which is responsible for, uh, I don't believe in the lab leak theory, but that's me, but China that is, that is responsible for hiding something that was clearly going to be pandemic, so I don't forgive them, has taken advantage of both its ability to control jurisdictions, closing all of Wuhan down, uh, but also um, uh, has uh, used vaccine distribution and what we call vaccine diplomacy, um, and has been distributing vaccines throughout the world in a way in which the world is responding, not, not, not Britain, not the EU, but Latin America, the African countries, smaller countries in the Middle East. And so it's just something to think about. We have a tendency to sort of, you know, view how is, you know, we have a tendency to view ourselves as the sun, right? But I think, I think, um, and everyone is responding to us. And that's true. I mean, we're still the United States of America. But I do think, you know, we're, there's two suns now. And the, the planets that aren't revolving around us may be heading towards the other one. And it's just something to watch, which is a, which is a consequence of, of, of it's a consequence, it, it was happening anyway. Then there's Trump, who's a, in some ways a reflection of it, right? Who, who is America first. And you know, a belief that the world will just respond to us because we're America, which is not true. And then COVID, which sort of then created the planet sort of heading towards another sun. So that's just something to watch in terms of the long-term um, aspects of, of COVID. So I've talked long enough. I would take questions on anything related to Homeland Security or any of the issues that brought us here, but I just figured I'd focus on COVID, but happy, you know, Afghanistan is in the news. And if you give me a second, let me just tell you when I'm going to be on CNN, I just have to confirm it. Okay, wait, I'm so confused. Okay, I'm not going to worry about it. Professor, um, I'm very curious as to your thoughts of the evacuation of COVID cabal right now, yeah. uh, both on the left and the right, uh, Biden is being eviscerated. Yeah. And yeah. yet I wonder what else he could have done. Nothing. So <laughs> I have strong opinions about this too. I, I, don't, I don't get this. I mean, I don't, I don't um, the commentators who are on TV uh, who uh, envision a world in which we won, right? I mean, and in which the Taliban is not in control think we have an ability to control uh, our exit. Um, and so I heard, I heard Ben Sass this morning on TV say, the Taliban doesn't tell us what to do. We need to extend the deadline. First of all, I think the, I think the deadline is good. I'll get to that in a second. I think it's good vis-a-vis -vis the United States. 
But like the Taliban exactly can tell us what to do. I mean, like what, what, like the, what part of we lost are we not getting here, right? Um, and so I think, and in some ways, I'm going to be honest with you, and this is like you know totally me. I, I was definitely inconsistent with my network, and uh, and it was not easy. They've, I've noticed they're booking me more today and tomorrow. I think as they realize maybe they got this, they got a little bit ahead of themselves. So just a couple of things. I think the fall of um, uh, the Afghan army was was proof proof that Biden was right. I mean, in other words, Biden had always thought that the military was was selling him a, a, a cockamamie story, um, and had always thought, you know, this is an investment we've made. We're not going to make it any longer, and. Um, and someone has to pull the Band-Aid. And in a weird way, it kind of made me like him more. I mean, I have issues with him. I think he's not being strong enough on mandates and stuff, but it kind of made me like him more. Like, yeah, he saw this, right? It lasted 48 hours. His people are telling him they'll last two years. They're not lasting two years. So he's sort of hand. So it's in a weird way, the bad news ended up just confirming even his worst thoughts, right? So that's the first thing. Um, the second is, um, um, is the exit. So I think here's what, here's my take of what's going on, which I, I, I've been saying more publicly is, uh, we have a deal with the Taliban. They, they, we have an aligned interest against ISIS-K, which is the, you know, the, 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 the shared enemy of, of two enemies. Uh, they want us out. They don't want us advertising how many Afghans are getting out. So the fact reporters are like, we don't know who who's being sent out. Like, yeah, we're not advertising that of that 80,000. My guess is just looking at the numbers, 72 to 73,000 of them are Afghans, right? The Taliban cannot sustain that story, right? They need to assert control. So they're willing to let those people out for a variety of reasons, including they, they still need access to Western capital. Um, and so we have to like sort of begin to think of the Taliban, however horrible, however monstrous, I get it, I get it, I get it. But they are the ruling entity with a strategy. They have a strategy, which is they need to get ice, they need to stabilize the country, get ISIS-K out, and that aligns with ours. So the bombing attacks today are sort of our worst case scenario. There's bombing attacks at the airport, which is ISIS-K is trying to assert itself, trying to assert its control over um, over the uh, Taliban. It's going to be a hand-to-hand -hand combat. We get out now. That doesn't and so and we get out with pretty good numbers. There's probably between 500 and 600 Americans still left there, and and you know those of you I don't know uh, your age ranges and and service and stuff. You know there's some like. Uh, people, Americans can sometimes be odd. And some of those people there um, had every opportunity to get out earlier. I'm not, that I have to be super careful here. Um, but am I going to risk troops uh, for a extended deadline that the Taliban is not going to agree to? So you've already now gone to war with them for a couple hundred, we don't even know, but sort of the last of the identifiable Americans who, whose story of why they're there, why they never signed up with the State Department and why they took so long to identify themselves is not clear. It's just like, just something to think about, right? It's a, so I don't wanna say there's worthy and unworthy Americans, they're all worthy. But what I am saying is 
there'll be evacuations on the other side of the 31st, either through India or some other um, third party. So we shouldn't think it's a, it's a, you know, all the Americans are being left behind, but, you know, people show up to these countries and I'm not, I'm not surprised the state department doesn't know who they are. There's a, like, there's a huge drug trade in Afghanistan. Like Americans are crazy. You know, people show up at weird places. Those of you who were in Vietnam or Korea know that too. Like it's crazy. Okay. Hampton. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I grew up very influenced by the Vietnam War, and I imagine a lot of other people here did also. And I was, uh, yeah, I think we're all we're just about all in the same age range. And uh, uh, <clears throat> I see this as very comparable. And the, on the one hand, I'm kind of moderate left, and I I, I would love to see Biden do well. And in some ways, I think he, he, he has. Uh, the, on, on the other side, you know, I just saw pictures yesterday, I think it was on CNN, of these moats full of uh, urine and feces uh, around the, uh, yeah. the, the uh, uh, airport that, that the people have to stay into. And uh, secondly, uh, I, I find it intolerable, intolerably racist while Biden and uh, Blinken uh, keep uh, <clears throat> talking about, we'll get out the Americans and the Afghans. Well, they, they will get out some, some Afghans, but, but you just think about America going into other countries and saying, we're with you. We're with you all the way. We're here to stay. Here we are. Yeah. Oh, bye. Yeah. No, it's tragic. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, I think I, I hear that and I, I can sound a, a little bit too tactical at times. I get that. Like, I think some reporters mistake heartbreaking with chaotic. Um, it is heartbreaking, but 80,000 out is not nothing. I mean, it is, it is un. I mean, there were what, 7,000, we got 7,000 out um, uh, uh, in Vietnam. I mean, obviously our capacities are better. We clearly have a deal with the Taliban. There's no way that could happen without a deal. Um, and so, and so I tend to think, and this is how I'm thinking about it now, which is the the um, the standard now is less bad. <laughs> so, it's, in other words, well, how much can we get out before 31st when we want when we want our evacuations to look a different way? And so that's really really key at this stage. So that's what what. I think we focus on the issues like conditions, how they get out, stuff like that, that I'm going to worry about later um, in terms of, you know, getting people, you know, good food, whatever. I'm just, I'm just going to worry about, you know, from, from a logistics standpoint, I'm just going to worry about, can I get, uh, 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 um, uh, uh, get get them out then i worry about the things that the the visuals that that you're seeing and and by all accounts once they get to the third third country holding uh that's okay so um so yeah so that's sort of how i'm thinking about it right now um and sort of less bad and eighty thousand or whatever our number is today is really good really really good uh but we won't get everyone out we won't it's horrible uh but um you know, you don't, you know, I, th I think on the other side of the 31st, we'll see what that looks like. Nick? Uh, yes. 
many questions come to mind, but I'll plunge into a little different one here. <clears throat> what are your thoughts <clears throat> on information sharing, distribution, organization in the United States, the trend toward uh, more and more information being spread around uh, under the control of the government, what's to stop us from looking like we're on the path to China, China's approach? Yeah. And I start off with, I think it was Michael Hayden um, under um, George W. Bush, uh, who <clears throat> proposed a monstrous uniting, uh, monstrous database to pull all information together, CIA, FBI, down local, uh, and have it all available for uh, government forces. What, what are your thoughts on stopping or controlling it, where it's heading? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think that there is that fear and obviously government can can overreach in that regard. I mean, there's obviously legal and judicial constraints around it. Um, uh, and, um, and we saw some of that also in the immigration front with the Trump administration in which immigration was used as a, as a ruse to, to try to get uh, information. I think, um, I think there's also probably a shift in expectation of privacy, a generational shift that probably will re be reflected in the laws again, and that the bigger focus now is uh, with technology is uh, encryption and ways. In other words, the default will be openness, and then what means do we have to, to secure some of our privacy? It's just it's just an opposite vision. Part of that is just reflecting the market. Uh, people's expectations of privacy are just very very different in the market. And then if they want something private, they get on WhatsApp or or some encrypted website and and do their work that way. So just something to you know, like will the law reflect that that the default is, but. Um, but I, that does concern me. I, th I do think that there's been uh, considerable both public, congressional, and or all uh, judicial pushback on some of those efforts. So I worry about those less, uh, uh, but I do worry a little bit about the clamoring, honestly, by progressives uh, to get a domestic counterterrorism law. I don't quite get it. Like, you know, they want to go after the Trump people. They want to go after the right-wing extremism. There's a big push for a domestic counterterrorism law. We can prosecute terrorists. We prosecuted ISIS terrorists, Al-Qaeda terrorists. We, we, we prosecuted the Boston Marathon bombings under good old-fashioned criminal law. I just, I don't get the push on the left to do this because of the issues uh, that you said. John. Yeah, well, I have a different take on some of these, especially Afghanistan. I was in Afghanistan twice in the 80s, where I saw that the Afghan government that we uh, went to great lengths to drive out. I, I saw their labor unions raising funds for the British miners. Women were walking all up and down the street wearing whatever they liked, studying journalism. And uh, we decided to knock out that government, just as, as I would say, since the 1898 when we decided to control the Philippines. Yeah. And then we uh, knocked out uh, Mossadegh in Iran. We knocked out our Benz in Guatemala. We knocked out you know, people in Africa and Asia. Uh, any governments that didn't want to knuckle under and maybe they wanted a, a socialist, whatever orientation. And we, so this is a really a 40 year involvement. Yeah. It's not a 20 year involvement. Ever since uh, Brzezinski and certain others went in with, you can look up Operation Cyclone, we began spending millions and then billions in Afghanistan. 
in the 80 in the 80s yeah started in the 80s so this is a much deeper uh kind of politics than what we're being presented when we just look at these uh kind of th theatrical or sports analyses of did we get out well and what does the uh, exit look like was it an elegant exit uh did they play well in the fourth quarter and all of this superficial kind of uh, news coverage we get uh what we're really seeing i would say that from the point of view of whoever in the cia and elsewhere likes imperialism they see afghanistan as a success because they prevented a, uh, a democratic and progressive government from taking over there. And, and they have lived around the world with right wing and crazy and nut and murderous um, governments rather than potential progressive governments that could have got in. So that's why they can exit. The Taliban wouldn't even be there in the first place if it hadn't been for the United States. They weren't strong enough to take over that country even in the late 80s and 90s except they were, they were armed and trained um, you know, by, um, by the United States and, and its um, partners. So I, I would say that's what we're seeing there. And I think from that point of view, this, uh, this is sort of a, a leisure domain going on where we are supposed to look at how they play the exit. But as far as they're concerned, the Taliban is in, and obviously they would rather have the Taliban in than a representative progressive government. When I, I first got interested in Afghanistan, when I heard Dr. Anahita Retabzad, who was head of the women's movement at an anti-nuclear uh, weapons uh, uh, meetings in Prague, and they were talking about Afghanistan. And she said that when Richard Nixon came to their country in the uh, 70s, he said, what a wonderful country. It's just like probably what was uh, going on in the Middle Ages. And it's great to have a place in the world where we can still travel and see how people live before there was civilization. And, uh, you know, they, they had, uh, but they had a core of um, intellectuals and progressive people there, many of whom had studied in the United States and thought the United States would support them. You know, just remember Ho Chi Minh and Castro and others thought the United States really was going to support democratic movements. So, uh, you know, that kind of burned them up. And that was the impetus for the government that we really finally uh, drove out of power. So, I, as I say, it was a 40-year involvement. And, and I'm sure there are those in the deep state or whatever we call it who chalk it up as a success. You know, I, I get it. I hear it. Um, um, I, 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 to be honest, I think you're giving the deep state too much credit. I mean, this well, is someone's a, doing this it. Is a, this is a freaking nightmare. Um, it's happening over and over. Plan this, you know, it's not. Yeah. Who does it? I mean, I don't know who makes these decisions and where, but there's a pattern to them. Yeah. Yeah. It's imperial. I mean, it's a sense that we can control. I mean, this is this is what you hear now, right? The sense that we have a say in the Taliban's future. Um, you know, that uh, that you know, we don't. That's. I mean, that's. We have their funds frozen. Their funds are. Their money is frozen, and um, I know they're going to be very concerned about that. But they're used to dealing with misery, yeah. and poverty and ignorance and internal violence so i mean the place uh, is, you know when we often when we leave a place we leave it in chaos and ruins and i think that's what that would be their fate yeah
That is, that is, that is true. How do you, how do you feel uh, the, the media is handling it in general? Um, well, the media isn't, uh, my, you know, a single thing. So I do think that there is a, that there is a gaming of this in a way that's sort of ahistorical, like as if Biden just sort of woke up and created the situation. I also think, and I saw this with COVID, uh, there's still a lack of understanding about how sort of honestly supply chain logistics work. I was not worried about whether the evacuation would occur. Once you heard that the Taliban had supported it, you knew that the numbers were going to be big. This was the same thing in the early days of COVID where everyone was panicking about distribution. And you're kind of like, it just takes a while, right? I mean, and now we're like supply saturated, right? You can just go in, go in without a without a, um, uh, a um, appointment. Um, there are some great reporters out there. I think what's interesting is many of the senior people who have their own shows now, whatever, sort of got their start in Afghanistan in terms of foreign correspondence. That's a blessing and a curse. I think they do have a greater understanding of what's happening. I think it's a little bit of a curse. I think there's been a little bit too emotion, too much emotion. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's not acceptable as a report. I mean, in other words, like, um, I, maybe I'm old school on this, but I just don't think it's like, you know, to, to, to be panicked as a reporter or to, to, to be as partisan as some of them sound just, you know, some of the good reporters. I mean, it's just not, it just doesn't, it just doesn't ring right. You know, the, 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 there will be Afghans left behind. That's a story. You don't, I don't need to hear how horrible it is from someone who's reporting the story. So, and I think some of that is because of their ties to Afghanistan. Cause they're, you know, you think about a 50 year old who's running their own show who probably got their start in Afghanistan. So we'll see if it gets more sophisticated. Ken. Okay, last question, because my son is hollering. Okay, Ken. Ken. Uh, it, it, it's, it, maybe it's kind of a pointless historical question, but how different, or would there be any different situation in, if, uh, in Afghanistan now had the U.S. not gone into Iraq when we did? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, oh, my God. I and mean, when did we lose I mean, this is my, you know, cause I'm in counterterrorism. So when did we lose Afghanistan in 2002, right? I mean, it is, and, and, and I, okay, now I get to be partisan. The Bush people who are coming on air as if they, you know, and I, I believe the Afghan, I believe the Afghanistan, just to take you back, that, that, that the counterterrorism mission in Afghanistan was totally justified as a defensive measure after 9-11. That you, that you, you bomb, you know, you get rid of Al Qaeda, you go after bin Laden and remember people are forgetting this. The Taliban was given a choice. The Bush administration said, you are either with us or against us. Pakistan had been on the fence. Pakistan goes with us. Um, Afghanistan had the option, right? Taliban, are you going to help us get, and they chose no. And that's when the mission then became this, what was this mission? It stopped being a counterterrorism mission. It became something else, right? It was because we had aligned the Taliban with Al Qaeda, and I think that's so. I, you know, I can't stand hearing these people on TV telling this administration how to get out of Afghanistan. Like, we, you know, what the theory of Afghanistan, and this is going to sound incredibly harsh. Go in, get Al Qaeda get out, don't worry about what happens next. I mean, in other words, that was not our responsibility. Their government was responsible for the death of 3000 Americans on September 11th. They must pay, let, 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 let someone else figure out what that looks like. That mission changed. 
uh, both in terms of focus and position in 2002, 2003, 17 years later, now you're going to tell me that this is pre this president is doing it wrong. I mean, it's just, it's just, it is so frustrating, but we could have been in and out in Afghanistan in, in 2002 with the same, if not better results. I mean, those of you with someone mentioned Vietnam and I'll end on this, like countries are crit I mean, History is pretty remarkable. I mean, when we fled South, you know, when we fled Vietnam, who would have thought? Those of you, I've had the benefit of traveling there twice. Like, I mean, you go there, you kind of think we won. Like, we didn't know it then, but something's going on here that is, you know, this is what McCain, you know, had said when he visited there. So it's just something to think about that, you know, hopefully, knock on wood for the Afghan. That was Julia Kayum. That is it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.